Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Tyler Dunn from Go Long. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Go Long at golongtd.com to get all features, all profiles, all Q&As, all analysis, and, of course, our Zoom happy hours every Friday night. We have special guests on. If you catch us this week on Friday night, we are going to have Buffalo Bills legend Steve Tasker on to drink some beers tell some old war war stories, get his take on the bills today. So for a couple cups of coffee a month, sign right up, get your questions in, and it's going to be a hell of a time. Uh, But thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We have a awesome, awesome guest. I think this might be our best podcast uh, conversation today. Eric Wood, Um, just, just incredible conversation. Looking back at his bills, teams, the ups, the downs, even share some untold stories I don't think people have heard before. So uh, kick on back. Let us know. If you like the podcast, you can rate, review anytime. We are brought to you by Hamburg Brewing. Be sure to stop in and get yourself a Louis IPA, any beer you like. They got it all. They're versatile. Hey, you like the sours. You like the IPAs. You like the stouts. You name it. They've got it. It's all incredible. Uh, be sure to stop right in right off Route 219 if you're in western New York. And we are hosted by Blue Wire, which they've got a podcast for everything. You know, football, basketball, baseball, hockey. Check it out. Blue Wire podcast. Find what else you like to listen to. But right now, here's our conversation with the great Eric Wood. All right, guys. We're, we're joined now by Eric Wood, somebody that you're very, very familiar with. 
2015 Pro Bowler, nine NFL seasons, Eric, 120 starts, two fractured legs. Maybe there were more that I don't know about, but um, you, you saw it all. I mean, it was a joy covering you. I mean, you're one of those guys in that locker room. It was like, as a reporter, you feel this magnetic pull because you're going to learn something. You and Richie Incognito, you know, you're two little pockets of the locker room. Uh, that 2015 season, that was fun. Um, but man, it's it, it's great to have you here on the podcast and we want to hear all about your podcast, What's Next with Eric Wood. It's a must-listen for everybody out there in Buffalo and beyond. Um, all right, enough rambling for me. How in the hell are you? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate the warm introduction, and it's an honor to be on with you, Ty. And, uh, yeah, when you were coming over for information, you get, like, the clean version from me, the dirty version from Richie, and uh, move along. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, you kind of knew. All right, you know, there's – but you were always, you know, win or lose – I mean, you were there, game in, game out, practice in, practice out, accountable. Shit, I don't know how you did it with all the losing seasons, and thank God eventually, you know, you kind of busted through and made the playoffs. But, like, man, it was so appreciated because there, as a reporter, when you're in there, it's – I mean, there's some tough moments. I mean, that 2015 season, we got Jim Onis on here now. He's, he worked through his technical issues. Like, Jim remembers that season well. It was – God, it was batshit crazy. I mean, every day – there was something newsworthy. Somebody said something, and it was a reporter's dream. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. But, like, if you actually needed, like, that calming presence, if you wanted to learn something, and, and why why did they lose this game, Eric Wood would deliver every time. Yeah, and I – you know, I had a, a respect for the media because since the day I got to Buffalo, people talked me up so much. When I came into the University of Louisville, I had one scholarship offer. I was – I came in the same class with Brian Brom, who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a junior in high school. He was the USA Today Player of the Year. Like, I got no media attention. That's fine. As an offensive lineman, you don't care about those types of things. But I came into Buffalo, and my reception was so warm. It was kind of misquoted, but through the Aaron Maven stuff, everyone built me up to be this, like, folk hero early in my career. Yeah. And so I had this mutual respect for the media because they treated me so well. And I, I knew you guys had a tough job covering a team that was in the longest drought in professional sports to make the playoffs. So I had this respect, like, I'll give you guys something. I'm not just going to give you cliche answers. And there was only one time, and I'm actually really good friends with Tim now, so he wouldn't even mind me telling the story, <laughs> where Tim Graham, after a practice fight, wrote how I was in a murderous rage, quoted me dropping an F-bomb, like, in print. I'm like, Tim, you didn't have to do that. And I, I got a little salty with him. But other than that, it was such smooth sailing with me and the media in Buffalo that I wanted to return the favor because you guys had always treated me so well. Oh, God. Well, hey, we, we appreciate it. I mean, that's – uh, yeah, we, we, we got to get Tim on here. Maybe we'll revisit that one day. And uh, that, that does sound like a nice practice. I, I, don't, I probably would have done the same thing, honestly. Like, that's to, – to bring that to life, that had to – you had to add some moments in practice and training. Well, the camp, only huh? issue I had with it was one, the f bomb, and two, the murderous rage. Like, yes, I said I was going to kill somebody, but I wasn't really in a murderous rage, obviously. And then two, it was like I would go visit kids at the hospital, and that would be all their parents wanted to talk about. Like, my phone was blowing up constantly, so it became this unnecessary distraction for me from something that should have never been reported, other than that maybe there was a fight at practice. You didn't have your cleat off and, and you were going after Fitzy and, you know, ready to just kind of gouge him in the throat. That that didn't happen. We might have been goofing around the locker room doing that, but no, not on the practice field. 
So what's life like now for you, for you, Eric? I mean, your podcast captures life after not just football, but just what's next in general in life for, for people so well. But you personally, what's your day-to-day really like? No, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate the shout-out to the podcast. But on a day-to-day, honestly, I got a wife and two young kids. They're five and three. Uh, I try and pour into them as much as possible, try and make an impact at home first. But, you know, I have my podcast that I'm doing. It's called What's Next with Eric Wood. And we bring on people from all different genres, realms, anyone from a CEO to head coaches in the NFL to NFL owners to current players, former players, buddies of mine, motivational speakers, people that perk my interest. It's been awesome just having conversations and learning the other end of a microphone. You mentioned I would always be receptive to the media in Buffalo, but I was always getting interviewed. It's different when you're on the other side of the mic. And so I wanted reps at that, knowing that some type of media work would be in my future you know, if I put the time in. So then I also cover ACC Network and, and ESPN games. And then this year for the Bills radio coverage, it kind of got jacked up. I was doing post game, but um, should have been calling the games like I was the prior year. So my falls are extremely busy. It's a lot of football. It's a lot of travel. Even when I'm home, it's a lot of prepping for games. When you're prepping for two games a week, even though the Bills I'm so familiar with and even a lot of their opponents, like, Tell me who their coordinator is, and if I don't know him, I can look up where he came from, and I can tell you what their offense and defense are generally going to look like. You know all the players. NFL is very easy to cover. The college game is a lot tougher to cover because you got to learn all the names. you got to learn these coordinators, where they're from. The offense and defenses are so jacked up in college football because of all the spread offenses and all that. So that's a little bit more time-consuming in the offseason. You know, now I truly get an offseason again. Now that I'm in broadcasting for football, it's more time on the podcast. It's um, spending more time with the family, doing some traveling, playing some golf, trying to stay in shape and yeah. keep my broken body feeling good. I mean, it's it, it's wild. I am always just so fascinated with, with somebody like yourself. You, know, you spend a decade in pro football, all the injuries, the the, the the physical pain, the the mental, the emotional pain, and the toll that takes. Like. I mean, with any inclination, did, did, did part of you just want to fall off the face of the earth, go off the grid, maybe you and your family, you know, go to the freaking Caribbean for a, a few years and just chill? Like, why, why do you want to be around this game as much as you are right now? I honestly felt like that's what I did because when my career ended through the injury, the Bills didn't cut me till May 31st. And I had to be very careful even talking about, like, losing weight or – trying to pursue a job in media or anything else because that would be me retiring. And I wasn't technically retiring. I was injured. I was disqualified because of injury. I would never pass a physical again. So that five-ish months through that time, a little over five months, I felt like I did hit obscurity. And for me, it was like I couldn't go get a job. I couldn't really work. Now I was working out and we were doing a little bit of traveling and whatnot, but we had just had a baby. So it's like you can't do that much as a family to even leave the house and I realized that that's not for me. And a lot of people that are extremely driven in life, that isn't for them either. You you hear about all these guys that finally retire in their 60s and they move to Florida and how quickly they pass because they've given up what they were doing, that hope, that drive they had that kept them going on a day-to-day basis. They left it. And for that five months, I call, I call it who gives a crap mode, but I kind of got in this like who gives a crap mode and that's no good for me as someone who's always been so driven. It was like, who who gives a crap if I wake up today and go work out or who gives a crap if I 
read something or try and stay up to date on football or anything. It just didn't really matter. And for me, I needed something again that I could pursue at and try to be the best in the world at something. And do I have like this clear cut vision of what I want to do ultimately in media? Is it to be the number one podcaster? Is it to be on college game days at the call Monday night football? I'm not exactly sure, but I'm definitely enjoying being back around the game more than I was than during that five months of just pretend like you don't exist. Wait till you get the money that the bills owe you and then we'll move on. Well, you'd be a hell of a lot better than pretty much every player that that's on a broadcast today. I, I feel like everything is very, very just kind of insipid and muddied down, and everybody's afraid to offend everybody, and then and nobody really says much at all. So it could be a lane right there, Eric. And you say that, and we had this huge call with ESPN, everybody that's in NFL football um, or college football for them, and the amount of, like, words and phrases that they said, like, hey, be very careful. Some of them I didn't even, like, understand, like, um, you know, like, phrases like nip something in the bud. That that has, like, some type of historical reference that's either, like, um, racist or is discriminatory in some way. It was, like, it was like a bunch of different terms like that. And then you go to call a game and you're like, man, what was that list of things I can't say again? Well, I better not even think about it because that might be on the forefront of my brain and it might come out. Um, but with that, I, I think football is going to be like broadcasting is going to be a little bit fresher coming up. And I don't mean fresher, like people trying to fake like a hip personality. I just think guys are realizing now, and I had a guy on my podcast named Kyle Eidemann. He's a pastor, but he's one of the most phenomenal speakers you've ever heard. Like if you, if you heard a church service, he did, he could speak at a church. He could also speak to a fortune 500 company and never talk about the Bible. And like, that's just how the type of communicator he is. And I asked him on my podcast, I said, how, what would you suggest to become a better speaker in general? And he said, nowadays, just be authentic because you have to appeal to the TikTok generation, which he calls like this younger generation all the way up through, um, people that are our parents age, the, the, the traditional sports watching people when it used to be more of like a theatrical performance by the play-by-play guy and the analyst. And he's like, dude, nowadays you just want to stay like true to yourself um, and just be authentic and have fun with it. And that's where you see guys like to me, Tony Romo, mm-hmm. uh, Kirk Herbstreit, those guys, they're so relaxed and they look so calm and that's why they're so appealing but like they also are the only ones with long deals. Like they kind of, they, yeah. they, they, they have the most job the security, security so they yeah, have yeah. the most fun. And, but I think you'll see more and more guys kind of emulating that more like kind of freelance where like Tony Romo, everyone's like, man, it's amazing how Tony Romo predicts plays. And I'm like, dude, you know how many times I can do that during a game, but our, but it traditionally a play by play guy goes and the analyst goes, Play-by-play guy goes, well, Jim Nance and Tony Romo are buddies, so he's and, – and Jim Nance gets to pick and choose any sporting event he wants through CBS, so he just says, like, Romo, if you want to come in, just, just start talking. Yeah. Well, like, a lot of guys don't get that opportunity. That's so true. I mean, I think Jim's good, so we'll let him jump in here in a second. Um, but, like, uh, I'm obsessed with Adam Carolla's podcast. I mean, I think he's the king. And I, I, it didn't even hit me until he said this – a few months ago, he's like, you know, I've hung out with Joe Buck. Like, Joe Buck is a hilarious freaking dude. Like, he could be out there. Like, he said, like, you know, back in the day, you know, the announcers would be up there just, like, making fun of players and just having fun. And, you know, they'd, they'd probably cross a few lines. They definitely did cross a few lines. But 
you know, he said now it's like Joe Buck is there and he's terrified to say anything. So you get this bland, blah production value that nobody benefits from. I, I don't know. I feel like we know the words and the things you can't say, and we need to stop being so offended about everything and, and stop being terrified of like, oh my God, I'm going to get ratioed on Twitter. Who gives a shit about Twitter? It's so right. minuscule. It's so meaningless. It's stupid. Like, God, I did. I, I don't know. I, I hope it turns. I hope there's like a snapback and there's maybe the podcasting world is so popular because of that snapback. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. And then when you talk about Joe Buck, if anybody out there hates Joe Buck or doesn't respect him, read his book because his book is phenomenal, and he is – everyone thinks he's, like, so arrogant because he's talked so confidently on a microphone. Like, he's one of the most self-deprecating people ever, and he's got a humor about him that's hilarious, and he's very open in his book about, you know, coming up under his dad, who was a legendary baseball announcer and all that. It's, it's phenomenal, especially people that are intrigued by kind of the other side of sports other than maybe the players and the team side of things. Awesome. Well said. All right. Jim, do you got that mic figured out over there? Are we good? Look, I'm here. Eric, what's up, man? It's good to see you. Likewise, brother. It's always a pleasure. Got to have a little morning beer. There you go. <laughs> That's the podcast world, right? Absolutely. I got Although you must Sorry, not drink Jim. anymore or you must be off steroids because you look a little thin. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I, no, I, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I was gonna say I watch I watch what I eat, but I had three consecutive Florida trips in a row in three weeks. Not I wasn't down there for three weeks straight. Coming back and going. One was a golf trip. One was a family trip. One was a couple's trip. And uh, I'm on a much needed uh, hiatus right now from traveling, boozing trips. I don't have to. I, I respect that. I know we all know what it's like traveling. Hey well, man, it's so, easy. Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. No, I was I was just thinking that Joe Buck stuff. Um, you know, I was thinking about Akib Talib was doing some announcing this year, and people had a little bit of an issue with it because I thought he was really good. I thought it was refreshing to hear just some kind of raw. You know, this is how we talk football. This is how we talk in the locker room. This is how we talk with our coaches. And I've listened to you plenty. I mean, we've talked so many times over the years. I'm not shocked at all that you're doing what you're doing, but. It would be nice to hear, you know, just some raw, just good talk like that. And, and Joe Buck, and you're so right, Eric. I've listened to him on Howard Stern on Dan Levitard's show. He is – he's hilarious, and you're right. He makes fun of himself before you even have to. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he what just he did, does is so hard. Yep. He just did Colin Coward's podcast. was really good on there. Yep. Um, so people that don't respect him, and, and I appreciate those words, Jim. And, and I thought Akeem Tlaib was good, too. Um, I think that you can get more guys talking. Um, so Akeem Tlaib, young broadcaster. So put him with a guy like me with a good play-by-play guy who can just play point guard. You know, give give a play-by-play guy like Steve Levy. He He's proven that he can handle a three-man booth because Steve Levy had all those years at ESPN. He's not doing it for a paycheck. He's doing it to put out a good product and have fun, probably create a little bit bigger of a legacy in the business and all that. Well, you give me and Akeem Tlaib, and I'm using Steve Levy just as a name, but you give us him. Well, now Akeem Tlaib can tell you exactly what the defense is thinking in a situation. I can tell you exactly what an offense is thinking in a situation, and that gives you a different perspective on a game. And, you know, they put me on the sideline for ACC Network, and that was kind of our plan was to have two different opinions. Roddy Jones was a booth me on the field. But when you're on the field, like, I never know when I can hop in. And 
I have a terrible perspective on the game. Half yeah. the time I'm turned around looking at my monitor, everyone's like, yeah, you can figure out those things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, here's the deal. You guys also want me to go hear what the coaches are saying behind the bench um, so I can give some insight. But then you also want me to be ready to be able to speak about a replay before I got to see my monitor. So it's and, – and I'm not a sideline reporter. I don't look like – those I'm not as pretty as those females or I'm not as good looking as Evan Washburn or those guys like they are phenomenal at telling stories that's what they've done they went to broadcast school I went to football school you know and so I can talk about the game and I can talk exit nose but if you want me to go report stories I'm I'm probably not gonna be the best at that I could tell just from seeing you a couple times watching and I could tell you were burst into like you had a lot more to give than what you know that sideline is I you're right that's I hate to say it, but that's, you know, you're above that. You really well, are. And there, yeah. I appreciate that. But there's a reason as when you're a GM, you're not watching the game from the sideline. You go down there at the end of the game just to walk off with the team, but you're watching it from a booth because that's where you get the perspective on the game. Yeah, we can see. It's amazing how much you do see from up there. I mean, Tyler, you watch it in the press box. I mean, you yeah. can see oh. right when the ball snap, you know who's going to be open. You know, you can see it right away. And it's funny to see sometimes how maybe the quarterback didn't see it or didn't see the blitz that, you know, you can see from up top, and it must drive you crazy too, Eric, when you're when you're da- or watching games, and it's either quarterbacks. It seems like get all the you know they get all the jobs in, in broadcasting, but the offensive linemen that once you guys get your opportunities, people have no idea how much you know about every single coverage, not just you know defensive line. You guys know what linebackers are coming, and that that call you make for the quarterback is going to tell him okay, I'm good. I know they got it protected. I just got to read the coverage now. And I just think offensive linemen have an incredible perspective. Now, I'm not saying Cordy Glenn would be great at doing right. the job. But, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, but centers, it's funny how centers are just – every coach we interview, Eric, and talk to, number one, top five positions, when we say, okay, you're building your team, what are your top five positions? And center gets in there somehow all the time. It's not always offensive tackle. Yeah, you know, people always think tackles are the commodity top ten picks or tackles, but coaches want smart, tough centers, and after that they'll they'll figure it out. Yeah, you and the thing about it is like centers can come in so many different shapes and forms. Like Jeff Saturday got cut early, then he plays so long, has a phenomenal career. Centers can you need a good center, but you don't necessarily need to draft a first round center. Now there's been first rounders that have worked out, but you don't have to get them in that way but a lot of times to get your rare breed tackle left left tackle that's 350 pounds that no one can run through them or get around them those guys you generally have to draft early it's not you know first first or second round when you look around the nfl and you look at when you look at the top tackles a lot of those dudes are coming out of the first and second round and to your point jim it's like it, this year i wanted I got two opportunities to be in the booth, but last spring I shadowed Louisville's coaching staff before COVID hit in the spring because the college game is so different. I was like, I want to be able to talk about coverages. I want to be able to talk about route route concepts. I want to truly know the difference between an RPO and a play action pass, which is one of my biggest pet peeves, which like, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but when a guy's calling a game and he keeps calling things RPOs and I'm like, (laughs) that is play action. The offensive line is pass blocking. That is a play (laughs) action pass. And then they'll say another time, like, man, look at this read by so-and-so watch him read the safety. I'm like, he's reading the backside linebacker on that, you know? So it's like, so I I went and for a week, it wasn't like I I didn't sit in the O line room. 
I was yeah. in the quarterback yeah. room. I was in the secondary room so I could hear them talk about what their reads are so that hopefully in the long run that'll pay off for me because, you know, I know that I know the box better than most oh, yeah. or as good as anybody. And I'm not going to say I'm a better than any other guy, but I know it as well as people. But I need to learn the secondary and pass concepts. So I've been trying to do that, and I was actually going to shadow the Bill staff during training camp to further do that, and then COVID hit, and it is what it is. Eric, I don't like watching college football that much anymore. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't enjoy it. I don't. It's it's such a different game. I don't know if you feel that way, but I don't enjoy watching it that much. I feel like there's only like five or six really teams competing for the national championship anyway, and everybody else is just kind of playing, which I have a problem. That's been for a while, though. Yeah. But the game is, you know, the game to me is just so – I just don't enjoy it as much watching it like I used to. I don't, and I know you love college football, but I love watching the NFL. It's just so different. And it's, I guess it's not just the talent, but just the way the game is played. No doubt. You're, you're exactly right. And I'll be honest, I don't tune into a ton of football outside of the ACC during the football season for a couple of reasons. One, if I'm doing bills and ACC, like there's only so much your brain can like fluently talk on. Maybe I'm not as, uh, maybe that's me uh, admitting my limitations, but there's only so much I can digest in a week. But the ACC is fun to me because I learn the players. I talk to them in production meetings. So you really start to like guys. You have pulling interest outside of just, you know, the school or whatever it may be. But, man, when you look at college football right now, the games are so long. And they're still stopping the clock after first downs. There's so many reviews. The targeting's always a controversy in every single game. Then a guy gets thrown out. And then you have such a talent disparity. And then nowadays with the playoffs, what we did was we made it interesting with the playoffs. But there's only – okay, if there's four spots in the playoffs, I think over the last, like, ten years there's been six – or however many years there's been six teams or seven teams to make the playoffs – realistically going into the season there's like six or seven teams that could make it well now like going to the orange bowl isn't that big of a deal if it's not one of the playoff games so your even your own school's games become irrelevant so much earlier than they used to and it just it's it's tough man and I, and I agree I asked Booger McFarland about it on my show and I said we should go to eight teams like get and and this is a long conversation but Man, you got to make it so a Central Florida, a Cincinnati, a Memphis, so that they have a shot at getting in. Because even if you expand it to eight, then they'll just flirt those guys at nine and ten as opposed to putting them at five, six, and seven. So I'm like, you have to give them some type of automatic bid if they run the table or if they go have one loss, whatever it may be. But I, I agree, it needs to be fixed because right now it's not dying. Like, there's still, like, when we hit our ESPN seminars and all that, like, when you look at the map and what their ratings are and all that, you're like, to to my point, you look at the bowl schedule and you're like, how is it worth it for ESPN to truly buy all these bowl games? Like, why wouldn't they give some of them up to CBS Sports or whoever would be next bidding? But for ESPN, it's like, they're all highly rated, and the big ones are so highly rated, it makes sense for them to buy the other ones to promote the other ones. <laughs> and so it's like this year I did the Liberty Bowl. It was at 4 o'clock on New Year's Eve. I got more text during that game, people seeing me on a broadcast, than I did all year, and that was Army versus West Virginia. Like I called bigger <laughs> games, better games. 
But because it's on during that time of year when everyone's sitting around watching TV and it's on ESPN, people will catch you. Man, that's amazing. I mean, I, I not to change the topic abruptly, Eric, but I mean, I I want to hear about your playing days because it's just always blown my mind how calm and measured and at peace you were season season out when the losing. I mean, all of the losing, all of the injuries. I mean, how how did you stay sane through so many coaches, through so many quarterbacks? And, uh, front you know, what was the low moment <laughs> for <Yeah>. front <laughs> offices? Sorry, Jim. So many front off. Like, was, was there a moment where you just, you really did just kind of want to lose your mind? I'll say this. I was probably, I am an eternal optimist. I'll just say that. Like, I'm always like, do we can get this done? What if this happens? It'll all be good. And so this is funny and this is not incriminating to him, but Kyle Williams is very pessimistic. His wife is like an eternal optimist. I'll say Kyle's more, I'll say pessimistic because I don't want to say realistic because that would be meaning that we would stink on in the year. But like, I would be like, this is our year. And Jill Williams, his wife would be like, this is our year. And my wife would be like, well, let's not get our hopes up too much. And Kyle would be like, I mean, let's see how it goes. And it'd be like, it'd be so funny. Like we, you know, 2011, we start the year, you know, or whatever. And we're, me and Jill are out in the parking lot. Like, I told you so. I told you so. Obviously, it didn't work out that year. But I'll say this, you know, um, it was a dream of mine to play in the NFL. The Bills gave me a first, made me a first round pick, which, like I said earlier, I had one scholarship offer to college. Like, I was grateful to be there. I wanted to be the best leader I could. I wanted the Bills to get their return on their investment. So the last thing I was going to do is like, sit around and mope. Now, Man, I'll say this. When I look back at, like, our teams in 2009 and 2010, when I compare them to teams probably 14, 15, 16, 17, it's amazing what we rolled out on the field. Now, there wasn't a floor that you had to spend to on the cap, or the floor was lower. It was, like, in the 80-something percentile. It wasn't you had to spend 90-something percent of the cap back then. But, like, when I think of some of those teams we rolled out with, like, and I would never name names, but we had some dudes that, like, would barely make our camp roster towards the end of my career that we were rolling out with. And when I think about, like, we started four offensive linemen. In my second game of my rookie year, we started four offensive linemen, or third game of my rookie year, four offensive linemen that had, like, three starts or less in their career. And we were out there scrapping. Like, we were actually playing pretty good ball early in the season – but I'll say this, when you're co- and I've had this conversation with Tom Brady multiple times, when you're constantly changing coaches and regimes, you're always drafting the different systems to where you can start off the season well, but based upon the salary cap and what you got to pay free agents coming to Buffalo, if you're not drafting to the same schemes and you get rid of those guys, you can't afford depth. So as soon as you have any injuries, you're done. And then ultimately, like I love the quarterbacks that I played with, but when you don't stand behind one quarterback, like could we have stayed with Fitzpatrick? Yes. Would we have won a Super Bowl? Maybe, but I definitely think we should have kept him in the building. Sorry, Manos, but I think we should have kept it. I'm just kidding. That was before me. That was right before him. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like I think we should have kept him in the building, and then we go to EJ Manuel, we go to Tyrod, and then the year my career ends, they bring in Josh Allen. But it's like I would have loved – that see what we could do if we just tried to build around one of them. Like, 
screw it. Even if we don't think that this guy is like the next coming of Peyton Manning, and you have to go find that guy if you want to win a Super Bowl, I get that. But, like, we moved on so fast from quarterback to quarterback to quarterback, we could never build around them. We had no continuity. And long story short, to answer your question, Ty, uh, it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows, but I'll tell you what, I was grateful to be there. The organization treated me so well. I never – I mean, and this is me having a good agent too, but I was always worth more if they cut me than if they kept me around based upon how my contracts were structured. I never took a backloaded deal. I never reset the market. I was never the highest paid in my position, but I was always worth more if they cut me than if I was on the team. So I had so much job security too that like I could just kind of do my thing and, and just treat people well and do my thing. And I didn't have to worry about all the politics of football and all that. Eric's right, right about Eric's name never, Eric, I can tell your name never came up in any type of when you know, when you're after a season, you're going through everybody, your name, it was always one of the easiest, Eric, yeah, good, you know, however we can keep them, let's keep them, and you don't find that a lot, but Eric, I always talk about on this show with Tyler, that the four things to win a Super Bowl, you have to have ownership that wants to win and stay out of the way, GM and head coach have to have some type of relationship, and you have to mm-hmm. have a quarterback, those four things, and Tyler, you know, he's always nice, but I tell him that we, McDermott did the right thing on getting rid of us because, and I say this because he had a relationship with Brandon Bean. Now you have the owner, the Pagulas, incredible owners. Now you have Bean and McDermott synced up, and then they hit on Josh Allen. They have the structure now to win a Super Bowl, I believe, you know, as far as the the top is right. And in the four years I was there, Eric, the top was never right, and you know it. I mean, like you said, right. we're shuffling quarterbacks every year. We're shuffling head coaches, defensive coordinators. We go from Petten to Schwartz, and we're, we have so much talent on defense. Then we go to Rex. We didn't even know what defense we were running. Was it a 3-4? Right. Was it? I don't even think our players know. No, right. they, didn't, they didn't. It was just I, – I honestly – and Eric, you're going to think this is crazy, but when McDermott when, – when they fired us, I honestly – had a sigh of relief for a second. Like wow. I felt like I was banging my head into a wall for four years, just trying to find how can we do this? And we're just mixing and matching. And we're just, and as, and, and like you said, you got to build, you got to cater to your coaching staff and what system they run. And that's how you draft players. That's why the Steelers, why are they good on defense every year? They're the same. They know what to right. draft. Why are the saints? The saints are good every year. Cause they know what they're drafting. Cause they've had the same coaching staff. And it really, we were just, it's, they finally got it right. They have the top structured and it, I'm not too afraid to admit it. I mean, it wasn't going to work the way we were doing things. No, and that, that's, that, that takes a man to admit that, but, and you could have built that relationship with Sean. It's not like it wasn't going to happen. You would have just had to cultivate it. It happened automatically with Brandon, especially because Sean, like Sean and Brandon weren't best friends in Carolina. Like no, their wives, that. like they didn't go out to eat with their wives every Friday night. That's not the picture. Sean respected Brandon, but when Sean went out on a limb and said, yes, I'll vouch for this dude, now you have that respect level. Now now you have that relationship. And, look, they don't see eye to eye on everything either, but they respect each other. And like you said, ownership that gets out of the way. It's so funny how that's overlooked with, like, the Cowboys and the Bengals and, and these organizations that you just like seem to like, like the Bengals had so much talent for a while. And, but like, man, when you take chance after chance after chance, cause you have the owner stepping into the draft meetings, like, 
no, I'll just bring him in. How did this guy fall to the second round? It's amazing. Take him. It's like when that stuff happens enough, you're going to get burnt by it. And right, I mean, Ralph did, you know, God rest his soul. I mean, didn't, I mean, that was, that's the stories with Ralph Wilson. He just kind of walked into the draft room, all right? Take it was this the guy, running back take from, um, I think the running back, I can look it up quick, but I think it was the running back from Fresno. They took two running backs one year. I think Mark, I'm going to look it up. Oh, yeah. But this story I know for a fact. Ralph I can just, picture him stout kind of running back from Fresno. Um, but anyway, it, Eric, you know the deal. It, it's when when you can't, and especially up front on the offensive line, and like you when you try to build like, so, okay, draft EJ. Well, I wasn't there for that, but they draft EJ. I come in right after EJ. Well, I could tell you in New Orleans, and we've talked, I, EJ to me was at best a backup quarterback. I just didn't see it at Florida State. Like, okay, but the Bills had conviction. They took him. So now what do we do? Okay, we, we committed to this guy, so let's try to build. So, okay, the one guy we all liked was Sammy Watkins. Let's go up and get Sammy. Well, that was the wrong move because he clearly wasn't the best receiver in that draft. Then in the same draft, we take three offensive linemen to help build around Egypt. Quanjo with Cyril Richardson with Sean Charles Henderson could have played, but with because he didn't care about football. So there you go, 0 for 3. You trade up for a receiver, a number one wideout who couldn't stay healthy. And, you know, if Sammy was healthy, sure, he could be a number one. But at the end of the day, EJ wasn't good enough anyway. So you set yourself back years just from that miss of a pool. You know, it's, it's, it's just that's how hard it is to put the, a team together. Yeah, and, and we can rewind this to the year before when they were talking about Russell Wilson. And David Lee, my opinion on him is um, I absolutely love him as a person and as a coach, but uh, he's not a draft analyst. He's not a scout. But David Lee, so I, I say that, like total respect for him as a man and a coach, but by me saying this, this doesn't mean that the Bills should have taken him. I just want to preface that. But he had Russell Wilson as the number one player in the entire draft that year. So the third round comes around, and Jeff Mazurik, the equipment guy, is so convinced. This is going to be breaking news. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> bring this up, but yeah, whatever. Jeff Mazurik had a Russell Wilson Bills jersey already made because he was so certain we were going to take him. The draft card actually got crossed out, and we took T.J. Graham. And there it is. That one stings. And there that it one is. stings. Eric, we were going to take Dak Prescott in the fourth round, and the Cowboys took him, I think, two couple picks right before us, and we ended up taking Cardale Jones. I mean, that's how close. Wow. That's how close sometimes. Was there something with Patrick Mahomes too, Jim? No, I don't know. You have to something ask happen- somebody. I, something I, happened there. Yeah. Yeah, we we traded what was the Eric, there was something we, that there was something that came out about that this year though cuz there was like Eric, another wrinkle. There was another wrinkle in the story. It was Eric, like the reason Tyler's saying that is we've talked about this every episode. I know, but, <laughs> but what was the what was the added wrinkle this year? Like someone said like, "Oh, actually so and so really liked them." Like, I think it was Bean. Like no, Bean Terry Pagula wanted Terry us. Terry Pagula, that's who it was. Yeah, Terry Pagula wanted us. Like, Terry begged basically was begging the whole building. Does anybody want this guy? McDermott didn't see it. Willie and I didn't see it. We just didn't see this. We didn't see it. I mean, we thought he was certainly off the chart talented, but 
to commit to him with a new coaching staff. Rick Dennison had a little bit under the quarterback, a little bit more under the quarterback system, wanted to run the ball a little bit. And we're thinking, Mahomes, you know, you come from Texas Tech, and, and Mahomes will tell you this too. He needed to learn. So can you imagine, and we talked about this on the show, but can you imagine if we did take Mahomes in 17? So he sits behind Tyrod that year with Rick Dennison. Well, that's a complete wasted year because now Sean moved on after that year. Sean realized he needed to get a little more modern, a little more an offense that was like the Chiefs are running, like the Rams are running, like let's go. But Dables does that. But Patrick Mahomes would have had a wasted year with us, where in Kansas City he didn't have a wasted year. He had a year where he learned everything he needed to to take over for that team his second season. So I do think that I don't know if Mahomes would be who, who he is if we drafted him, but we certainly should. The whole NFL, he should have been the first pick of the draft. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, you could play that game like, well, we should have taken – Russell Wilson might not have been Russell Wilson if he comes here and he doesn't have that defense in Seattle that he can just rely on uh, yeah. early in his career in a, in a run game with Marshawn Lynch and all that. You could play that game all year, all but it's year. like – but it was it was very eye-opening what Kyle Orton was able to do after not coming into training camp at all, signs literally the week before the season, five four games in, so five weeks after he shows up. And it's not like training camp learned the offense. He's just there, and then he's able to light it up because we had so much talent with Hogan, Marquise Goodwin, Sammy Logan. Watkins, Robert Woods, Scott Chandler, Logan. tight end, uh, C.J. Spiller, Fred Jackson. We had so much talent that he was able to be like, okay, I can make this work. And it was it was actually funny to me when uh, Kyle Orton took over because Marquise Goodwin had been um, – he wasn't even elevated in a jersey for a couple of our games early in the year. And Orton was like, dude, why is Marquise Goodwin sitting on the sideline? He said, in our first game, I think with him was Detroit. Yeah, and yep, it was. So he I was like, nope, I want Marquise Goodwin to run go routes down the sideline all game long, and he's going to pull people out of there, or I'm going to throw him when he'll catch it. On the game-winning drive, he hits Marquise Goodwin down the sideline on a go route. Chris Gregg was another dude, not a great special teamer, but a fast tight end, and, and Orton was like, nope, I want Gregg up. And everyone's like, really? Like, Lee Smith's a better blocker, whoever was there. You know, so-and-so's a better blocker. He said, I don't care. I'm going to put him on over routes the whole game. I'm either going to wear these linebackers out or they're going to have to cover him, and he's going to pull people out of there. And it was amazing, like, when you have a quarterback that can come in and command a room and do all that, what he can do. And this is a dude who was a journeyman throughout his career, had a good career, but, like, bounced around a little bit, not like a – not a Hall of Famer, but he comes in and is able to do that. You're like, man, what could we have done with – name your quarterback with the talent that we put around that team. That's amazing. I just love this stuff. I mean, I, as, as an observer, that, that just went over my head. You know, Kyle Orton, I mean, brilliant, brilliant dude then, like secretly. Yeah, my only, my only thing I got against Kyle Orton at this point is I gave up very few sacks in my NFL career. And one of them was Devon Miller on a, on a stunt. Vaughn comes into me. Vaughn got the sack. He still hasn't touched Kyle Orton. Orton <laughs> slid behind me on, and I was like, "Dude, I'm between you and the in the defender. What are you doing going to the ground, bud?" Like a Favre Strahan thing when Strahan got the record. Oh, I was right? like, Favre just doing, fell down. Yeah. I remember that play because I think we were all telling ourselves we were all looking at each other like, uh, "I think Orton might be checked out. Uh, oh. He might not want to be back here next year." Like I think he's done with football because he that year was. Eric, that, that was so eye-opening when we had him because it told all of us 
really it showed all of us that how far EJ was away, you know, from really being close, you know, to being the guy and how important it is to have that type of court. Yeah. That's what you need at the position, a guy who can just run the show, like pointing out players and that stuff is, you can't put a value on that. And, and I know this was at different points of their career, but talk about the coaching staff too. You had Doug Marone, who's the head coach in Jacksonville, won a playoff, won a playoff game, maybe two. Mm-hmm. And then you have Nate Hackett as the offense coordinator. He was coaching the NFC championship game this mm-hmm. year. Mike Pettin, defensive coordinator, coaching in the NFC championship game. Like we had the staff, but that's where it can happen, where you just, you said, here's the four things you need. If you don't have one, it's really tough to win in that league, and we didn't have the quarterback. Yeah, and the, and the ownership stuff was a mess. That you know, that was when he was you know was kind of who's running this thing and and who's going to be around. And Marone's a good football coach. I, I've always said that. I think Doug Marone is a really good football coach, and it, it's crazy to think he's at Alabama. That is nuts, dude. He's at he's at the uh, Nick Saban School of Rehab. He rehabs coaches and sends them back out. <laughs> I'm here for a year and let's do this. You can head back out. <laughs> wherever. I, Eric, I really want to ask you though about that, that 2015 season. Cause that was when I came back to Buffalo from Wisconsin. I mean, it was Rex's first year. And I mean, I, I don't know. I, I was just jotting things down. I'm trying to remember from that year. Cause it was something crazy every week you had, well, you guys signed I can and Polly after he punches his own quarterback in the jaw Rex is jumping out of airplanes and eating dog biscuits and showing up in the Clemson helmet. You know, I'm talking to Sammy in the corner of the locker room. He's, you know, give me those 10 targets a game. I still remember the next day in the locker room, like, man, Marcus easily wanted a piece of me. He was not happy. Um, Mario Williams kind of like quit on you guys at the end of the year. Um, Yeah, he did. Shady. Remember that Philly week when, He's talking about Chip Kelly, like Chip can't shake shit. Like I ain't shaking right. his hand. And then he gets out, he's kissing the logo at midfield. You lose. He's throwing the tantrum in the locker room. I mean, what, Percy Harvin, Percy, great start to the season. He disappears. Right. Um, uh, literally, dis- literally disappeared. <laughs> literally like, he disappeared. was in meetings one day. He walked out of the room, and I never saw him again. It wasn't like a trainer came and got him. He got up in the middle of a meeting, grabbed his stuff, and we never saw him again. I mean, do, did we – let's start there. Like, because he was, like, one of my favorite guys to talk to in that locker room. Just smart, introspective. Everything was about how he's at peace now after the fight in Seattle. Like, what the hell happened? Were there any warning signs? Any idea? No, I what? mean, well, yeah. Jim says – he shakes his head, yes. There were. Well, his, 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 history, his history was this. Everywhere he's been – this was at Florida, Minnesota, Seattle was – guys off the wall because he just he had a lot mentally going on i was just gonna say mentally he had a lot going on physically he had a lot going on too you're talking about a guy who was so used to being the most athletic guy on the field from the day he stepped onto a football field as a kid and now he's got a bad knee a bad hip i think too and then he experienced some head injury so i think the day he left i think ultimately he said i had a headache so we're watching film in a dark room with a light screen that's they say that's bad for head injuries. Who knows if that's confirmed? But, you know, he left, and we never saw him again. But he was battling through a lot of stuff. But I'll never forget the night before our first game, we're playing the Colts. Colts and yeah. Rex's preseason pregame speech the night before the game, they were, like, hilarious. They were honestly comedy skits. Rex is one of the funniest dudes ever. And, like, one week it was, like, the uh, – 
uh, it was like the comedy skit of all the players getting announced and the announcers can't announce their name, can't pronounce their names, but he substituted our coaching staff in there. Well, before the Colts game, I, I decided at that moment, if I ever get into coaching, I will, if Rex isn't in coaching, I'll hire him to come do pregame speeches the night before the game. He is one motivating son of a gun. And he starts going around our team like, why can't this be our year? We got this dude. We got that dude. Blah, blah, blah. Talking about his defense, this and that. And he's like, and you all haven't seen my guy Percy yet. This mf he is the baddest dude you've seen on the field. And then the next day he catches a ball over the top. It was yep. like one of our only touchdowns of the game. We completely dominate the Colts. Like, I thought we were going to be rolling that whole year. But to my point, Percy Harvin showed up. Early in the season, I, th- I I think he was getting dinged up, and you know, I I think he struggles mentally a little bit. What was the wildest moment for you that season, then, Eric? Thinking back, man, uh, I'm trying to think um, of what the. No, so, Eric. One thing I agree, with, Eric is so right about Rex. Every meeting we had, I would come out of every meeting thinking we're fine. We're we have every everything is going to be fine. Everything's good. You know, he his motive. He really is. He's a. I think he's an awesome dude to hang out with. His record, coaching record, speaks for itself. Things were just things were rough. Things weren't. You know, they, they were, and, and and I think it hurt him on defensively how good we were the year before under Schwartz. So then there wasn't complete buy-in from the defense. Our defense should have been awesome, but they weren't that good because there wasn't complete buy-in because we were so good under Schwartz doing something completely different. I mean, Jim Schwartz's defense and Rex Ryan's defense are polar opposites. Three down linemen, four D linemen. Blitz all the time, never blitz. Cover zero all the time, never cover zero. Um, zone, cover zero man, all that. You know, it's like that was a polar opposite scheme, so there wasn't complete buy-in there. But, yeah, Rex Rex is a great CEO. He's a great motivator. He He is one of the most empowering people I've ever been around in my life. I've watched him speak confidence into guys who I thought were terrible, and then they go out and play well on Sunday only because Rex built them up so much. And he'll do it throughout the week in practice and meetings. He'll do it the night before the game. And then this dude who you think's a scrub, like he goes out and performs well. I'll say this, though. We were so young at certain spots that he empowers these young guys to um, – a, not respect the veterans on the team. So Rex wanted us to police the team. I'm like, yeah, but you're telling all these guys, it's okay, do whatever you do. You do what you do. Okay, well, then it becomes really hard for us to police the team. And then also these guys didn't get it. So then, you know, they're out drinking on a Friday night partying. And, like, I'm no choir boy, but I know when to turn – I know when to reel it back. Like, I'm drinking on a Sunday or a Monday knowing I have all week to recover – you know, we had guys partying like crazy because it's like, you show up on Sunday, you're a dog, you be – now, that was empowering. These guys were confident, but it was, a, it was a mess at times. I mean, for me, it was 26, 2015 or 2016. Whenever we played New England at the end of the year, and um, – well, I'll say this. The year – whatever year under Rex when we lost to Oakland towards the end of the year, one of the most crushing defeats – of my career. That was brutal. That was yeah. brutal. And then we played New England like two weeks later, already eliminated from the playoffs. And Mono's already mentioned all the guys we drafted on the offensive line that year. And that was a struggle for me because those guys, 
they didn't want to hear it from me. I ended up being a jerk to them. I realized a lot of lessons in leadership that year, honestly, that I had to pour this younger generation. You have to pour into them a lot before you can ever give them some hard love, which I learned from that. But we checked the play at the line of scrimmage. We checked to a play going left. Our The left side of our offensive line went right. We all run into each other, fall down. It was a third and like three that we checked to a run because it was an easy look to pick it up. We all fell down. We went to the sideline. I said, boys, this is the last game we play as an offensive line because that doesn't happen in the NFL. Like that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. You'll never see that on film again probably. So you had to get after some of those those young guys. Was that 2016? 2015, I think. But, yeah. like, in like, not that they were bad guys, but it was just like I'm trying to pull Chantrell Henderson along because I know he's the most talented dude I've ever seen. Cyril Richardson's coming from Baylor. He's never played in a scheme like this, but we're trying to rush him into the lineup because he's so physically gifted. Quanjo's battling injuries, and I respect him, but he wasn't that second-round talent. Really, Chantrell and uh, Cyril, talent-wise, flipped. Character-wise, Cyril Richardson show up – or, sorry, man, they're hard to keep all their names together. Cyrus Quanjo would show up, and he would – you knew what you were getting from Cyrus, you know, consistently. So – Yes, it, it was tough dealing with all three of those guys. But when we had all the all those guys in the lineup, ooh, that was a headache. You know, Eric, I've said this before too, and you should know this, but like Doug Marone, he didn't want Quanjo. He didn't mm. want Cyril Richardson. Now he did want Chantrell in the seventh round. That was like we all. That was one of those. Lineups. I wanted him too. Exactly, seventh round. Who cares? But Doug Marone is a really good evaluator, and this is where it gets hard when, you know. Who has the power? You're factoring scouts' opinions versus coaches' opinions and who's winning out. And I don't want to get into too much, but I can tell you that that's how messed up it was at the top, though. You know, Marone didn't want Quanjo. He didn't. He never – he saw him run it and work out at the Combine, which I hate the Combine. I hate pro days. I hate all that. But it will – it can be a good way to um, check yourself, you know. Yeah, he's out there limping limping around when that's supposed to be like – your time to shine. He's he limping around. Awful. Run it. He yeah. just couldn't even run. Like it, he didn't even look like anything you would want to draft. And it was like, who is that guy? And then, and then you know, everything works together. Pat Morris was an offensive line coach who was so used to working with veterans. You know, handle your business. You should know the offense. I shouldn't have to baby you in this because Pat Morris coached some beasto lines, and it was veteran guys. Pat lets you do your thing almost kind of like a Rex approach. Like, I'm going to let you do your thing, handle your business. I'm not going to baby you, but show up. Well, gosh, they needed to baby that group. That was uh, – once you start talking about babying guys, you, you've drafted the wrong guys. No doubt. And they're, you know, 300-pound men that are bashing into other 300-pound uh, men. 350-pound yeah. men. Those guys were huge. Like, th- right. that's the person that needs to be babied? Like, not, not ideal, you know? Yeah. I always felt for Seal Richardson. He tried. He football wasn't natural for him, you know, and he never could get his weight down. He couldn't he you know, like you said, he had some ability. There was something there to him, but in a certain scheme maybe, but and Sean yeah, Trell could have yeah. Yeah, I would never pick on Cyril Richardson because you know, he just had, didn't have to do that much at Baylor, and yeah. he was a fifth-round pick. How many of those guys pan out to be yeah. all-pro type guys? But we thrust him in the lineup way too dang early. We yeah. put him in against J.J. Watt and just thought we were going to leave him one-on-one for half the game. I'm like, what are we doing? I remember talking to you about all this stuff during those years. It was always, you know, you were always good to talk to, and 
I could see your concern right away. You're like, man, because you've been around. You're like, I, it wasn't about their talent. It was about being professionals. You know, some of yeah, talent. Right, too, I'm but, like, and look around the league. The good offensive lines, like the Patriots, you get five, like, random dudes that are tough and smart and trust each other and play together, and they'll make it work. But you can get the five most talented dudes in the NFL together, and if everyone doesn't know exactly what they're doing, we're going to make a fool of ourselves. Eric, I was laughing. You brought up Jeff Saturday earlier. And when I started, when I was scouting for the Saints, um, our director of scouting, he's been scouting forever. Rick Reaperish is his name. Um, still working for the Steelers. But he would tell all of our scouts, he said, I'm going to tell you guys this. The worst college football player I ever watched was Jeff Saturday. Wow. He's like, he was like, guess who's still playing every Sunday? And he's, you know, whatever. And he was trying to tell us, and it goes back to the centers, don't. When you start hearing he's smart and tough and loves football, let's pay attention to him for as a center, you know, because those guys can last forever. At, yeah, at you can position. cover them up. You can cover them up with big guards yeah. and not let them get one-on-one and all that. Yeah. Man, it's so fast. All right, I just want to talk for hours and hours with you. Eric. I know, I mean, it's, it's, Eric, it's, it's funny. It's good, man. I feel like we could just, yeah. I know, yeah, we'll, we'll, have to do, we'll have to do it again with this crew. This yeah, it'd be great. fun. It'd be fun. How, Eric, so your podcast is going okay? podcast going great truly enjoying the direction it's going um it's funny like i get enough bills players to kind of keep it going and all that like to keep the buffalo fan base interested because that's where we're pulling a ton of our subscribers from and that's fun for me but like i wouldn't stay interested if it was just that so i'm talking to so many different types of people just really people that have transitioned in life like my career ended unexpectedly. That's why I called it what's next with Eric Wood. Cause I truly didn't know what was next for me at that time. I didn't have either of my broadcasting contracts. I, re- I just wanted to create some content, start working behind a microphone and just get out there, called a few buddies to do me a favor. And early on pre COVID, I was going to do like destination ones. Like I did Richie out in Phoenix. I did uh, Michael Ray from his tour bus. Like I was doing some fun deals like that. Well then COVID hit. Well, I thought at first I was going to crush it, but what that did was it made everyone sit at home and everyone was accessible because of Zoom. So then I'm like, okay, well, I'll get these authors, all these authors of these books behind me have all been on my podcast. It's like, I'll just start reaching out to people. And it's amazing the conversations and the alignments and the connections I've made. And not, I, I hate when people say like networking and connections, because it's generally in a sleazy way. It's like, no, I want to learn from you. I'm going to uplift you on my show elevate you up in front of my audience and then we can work together, but I don't want anything from you. I'm not going to, you know, ask you for a job or any, you know, whatever it may be, but I want to learn from you. And I, you know, and it's funny when you talk to enough people and if you're in the podcast space, you're generally like a growth minded, you're thinking about learning or whatever you're listening to. If you're not just listening to like my wife's Hopefully she doesn't listen to this one. My wife listens to like the housewife recap shows and stuff. Oh, like, my wife's into that too. Brutal. But she's like has it on while she's doing laundry. Like when I'm listening to something and I'm working out, I got my phone next to me in case I want to take notes on something, you know. Yeah. And so, and so for me, a lot of people in the podcast world, they kind of want to do the same thing as you want to do. And it's just been fun connecting with people, honestly. What was the most fascinating uh, conversation you had, Eric, on your show? Man, they get better and better, um, honestly. But um, most fascinating, I just did superlatives. So, like, uh, like 
Ryan Fitzpatrick was the funniest. We had a funny conversation midway through. He yelled at one of his kids and like acted like he was a jerk. And he's like the teddy bear in his house. Like his wife is the disciplinarian in that house. So it was funny. <laughs> like everyone thinks he's a jerk. Uh, but, um, you know, I had two good conversations with Richie. Honestly, uh, Richie was my first guest and Richie was out of the NFL that year. I assumed he was staying out of the NFL and he's like, and he wasn't training at the time. He goes, no, I'm going to start training. So I want to make a comeback. I'm like, really you make a comeback here we go and if i would have had better marketing around the podcast at the time i mean that would have been big news or whatever um man it's hard to say honestly the most fascinating i the most convicting story i heard on the podcast maybe you guys could take this with you i had a guy named bob russell he took a church of 200 members and built it to twenty-five thousand. it takes a pretty good speaker to do something like that um and when you look at their weekly offering uh businesses would would kill to have a uh, seven figure offering each week into their, into their business, especially as a non-tax. But I, I say all that, uh, Bob said, I, I, you know, I asked him something about marriage and he said, you know, one time, this is back when you had truly true answering machines. He said he picked up the phone right as the answering machine kicked on, but he didn't know it. And he, his wife called and he was at home at night. His wife was coming home from somewhere and said, Bob, how you doing? He said, I'm, I'm good. And she said, okay, well, you want me to pick you up some food? No. How's your day? It was good. All right, I'll see you when I get home. Okay, bye. And he was like, he went back, goes over later, goes to the answer and hits it and doesn't know that he's going to hear his own conversation with his wife. And he's like, it's amazing the people in your life you'll cheat. But then he's like all day at work at church. I'm like, Mr. Bubbly, I'm, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? let me prep for this sermon. I'm going to pour in all these people and all this. And then he treats his wife like that. And he he treats Judy really well. They've been married 50 years now or whatever. I say that it's like, you'll catch yourself doing the same thing to your wife, your kids, because you know that they're going to be around, but it's like, are you truly having the relationship you thought? Are you pouring (laughs) into them the way you thought? And I was like, man. And so I've, I've kind of tried to like check my tone with my wife, my kids, my close friends who I could so easily just, feel like I'm blowing off and can get away with it. Such a great point. It's deep, but it's true. It's so true. Right. It's like call call up your best friends. Call up your family members. Just just check in because life is short too. Um no yeah. doubt. I, I, ESPN Mike Richie and Eric should be ESPN's next booth. Oh my God. Games. I don't know if Rich you and Richie together would be I would love to hear well, that. It's, it's good, like fire and ice, too. You know, that's a, it's a good combination there. I know. We, we balanced each other out. It's similar to, like, early in my career, I wasn't Richie Incognito, but I was a huge hothead early in my career, and I still have the tendencies. But I was a very big hothead. Like, if I got beat ever during a game when I came to the sideline, they were going to have to fix my helmet because I was going to break it, bashing it on the bench, and I was always fighting people on the field. Murderous rage. All of, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Thanks, Tim. Uh, <laughs> I say all that. Jeff Hangarder balanced me out really well. He was our center, savvy veteran, would always get me to kind of calm down. It's like you always need like a yin and a yang on an offensive line. Like someone's got to be the dude. Later in my career, two reasons why I kind of calmed down. One, I was getting so tired in games because I was always fighting people and that just wears you out. And then two – when you're when you're truly in command of the offense, like I was with EJ and Tyrod, I wasn't like this with Fitz or Orton, but with EJ and Tyrod, 
I got a lot more of the responsibility. Well, I had to be in a different mental state of mind. Hmm. Like I got to come to the line watching safeties, watching corners, watching linebacker language to figure out what we're doing. I can't be sitting up there talking crap to a nose guard or I'm going to miss everything. <laughs> it's so true. Oh, my God. Well, that was that was awesome, Eric. Um, God, thank, thank you so much for just bullshitting, telling some stories. Before we lose you, though, I mean, we didn't even talk about this Bills team real quick. Like, where do you think the Bills are at? What should they do this offseason? It's kind of a heavy question here to tag on it. No, end, and, and like, Monos could, could probably dig into this way better than me, and I'm sure you guys will. But when you look at this year's Bills team, they had no gaps on their team. Like, there was no position where you said, man, they have to address this need. Now, they projected, they were going off the projected cap, so they have to make moves this year. So they're going to have to make some cuts on some guys that they don't want to to free up some space. And then you kind of go to this deal where, like, okay, the Bills were solid along the defensive line. They were solid along their offensive line. They were solid at running back. Do you go try and break the bank on a guy like J.J. Watt to try and get one difference maker, but then you're going to have to have some more role players here and there. And and the Bills are getting to the point where they have to pay some of these guys that they drafted, and they drafted extremely well, but now you got to pay a Matt Milano. You've already had to pay Trey Davis White. You're going to have to pay Josh Allen. You're going to have to pay all these guys. And with this salary cap dip this year, which I think is so stupid, especially when you have a 10-year, $100 billion TV contract sitting out there Thank that you. you know you got. Just smooth out the cap. You know it's coming, but that's not my money. You know, the owners would have to take a hit in order for that to happen. And when you can't strike as a player, you can't – when you can't go on strike because guys will, will uh, cave, then you can't go get those right. things. Right. So as right. dumb as I think as it is, and the GMs and the coaches, and they all want the salary cap to go up like it should, it's not. And so – I say all that. What do I think they should do this offseason? Man, when I watched the Bills play the Chiefs both times this year, but especially in the AFC Championship game, I thought this reminds me a lot of when the Patriots had Gronk and Hernandez and they were just rolling and you had to switch your defensive personnel to defeat them. If you wanted to beat them to go to the Super Bowl, you either had to get more athletic at linebacker or bigger at safety. When I watched this Chiefs team, I think I was thinking you have to have three fast corners that are good. So you got to go get a couple guys that can really move. Like um, I love Leonard Johnson, but he's not going to keep up with Tyreek Hill if you put him in the slot. So you either have to mix up your scheme, which you're not going to do because you love your scheme and it works, or you got to get more athletic at that spot on passing downs. Well, then you watch the the Bucks play them the next week, and the Bucks said, "Screw it, we'll keep our both of our safeties high, we'll make you throw underneath." And when the Bills tried to do that, they got crushed in the box and they just ran the ball down their throat. And, but the Bucks front six was so good. So you either have to, long answer, but you either have to get more athletic at corner and, and, and maybe even upgrade your second cornerback spot. So you either have to sure up those spots or you got to get better in your front six. So you either go get a difference maker on the defensive line. You got to either replace or pay Matt Milano too. Or you go pay a couple corners or draft corners to get more athletic there. I think your offense is set, but you're going to shuffle the offensive line simply because you can't keep Mitch Morris, John Feliciano, Darrell Williams. All those guys are getting paid. Good thing they're all either going to be cap casualties or need to get paid. The good thing is you, Ike Bacher has shown that he can play. Cody Ford's still on his rookie deal. So you have those two guys that can play two of those spots. And then I think you bring back John Feliciano – uh, I wish you could bring back them all, but John, he's the tempo setter up there. Yeah. He is. Yeah. 
period. And, and Dion is too, but John is that dude up there. Like, yeah. and it showed when he came back in the lineup this year, they were different on their offensive line. So you got to, I think somehow you got to resign him and then you're making decisions there. Do you go draft a running back? Do you do something at tight end? You can upgrade those spots. You could, but offensively, that's not your issue. Um, you just want to see progression from Josh Allen again. And I'm not saying statistically, just maybe a more consistent deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have a, a legitimate Super Bowl contender. They were this year, and you have another one again next year. It's going to be amazing, though, because – and I'll end with this. I know I'm going long on this no, answer. Go. But it's going to be amazing what happens this year, though, because the salary cap is going to be so low that all these guys hitting free agency are going to sign one-year prove-it deals or they're going to have an out after yeah. year. There's going to be a way for them to get out of this – small contract they're going to play this year. So that's going to create two years of a lot of hopping around for big name guys that are getting paid a lot of money. And so you're going to potentially have super teams this year because guys are really like, Oh, well, I can't get paid that much. So I'm just going to go to the bills, chiefs, um, Packers, bucks. I want to go play with Brady or Rogers or whoever, whoever may be for a year, go try and get a ring. And then I'll go when the cap just skyrockets next year, I'll go get my money. Well, that's going to create two years in a row of this. And so, I don't know. I just hope it doesn't mess up the Bills' run because you get Josh Allen on his rookie year, rookie deal for another year. Like, this could truly be a special year for the Bills. If something stupid doesn't happen where, like, everybody loads up and goes to the Chiefs and they become this, like, power that they maybe shouldn't be. I hadn't even thought of that, Eric. That, that's such a great point. We're going to see that. I mean, it kind of happened with Brady to the extreme this past year. It's going to happen yep. again. It's going to, with and, the and it's going to be a lot of, like, receivers, D-linemen, pass rushers, like guys that are going to impact games, but they're going to have one-year prove-it deals. And it's like that last year in uh, the NBA when, um, like, right before, like John Wall signed for, like, 14 a year, and now everybody's making 25 a year. It's like that's going to kind of be this year, and everybody knows it, so no one's going to sign a five-year deal knowing – that there's a ton more money or you're going to have to backload them and just assume. And, and that's why I said Monos would be better. Um, you guys can do a whole podcast on this, but you're, it's like, you're, you're going to yeah. have to like backload some of these contracts. Well, I'm just glad. I mean, it's tough times for these owners guys. I mean, they, they really, you know, they really should be doing this. I'd, I think they should lower it even more. It's, I mean, Jerry Jones only has two helicopters down there in Frisco. <laughs> so you know, he's, it's, it's rough. It's rough, but no, that was that was fantastic. God, Eric, they, thank you so much for spending all the time sharing all the stories. That was phenomenal. Everybody out there, go to his podcast. Can they just get to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, Eric? Absolutely. Search What's Next with Eric Wood or type in Eric Wood or What's Next. It'll pop up. On social media, I'm at EWood70. I'm a little bit more active on Instagram now responding to people, but nice. I still post on, on both. Great. Well, th- thank you so much, man. Great to see you, and hopefully we can do this again. Yeah, likewise. It was fun. It was fun, boys. Thank you.